Chapter 23 Difficulties Ahead After a moment of stress, such as I have just described, reaction is bound to set in. I retired to rest that night on a note of triumph, but I awoke to realize that I was by no means out of the wood. True, I could see no flaw in the alibi I had so suddenly conceived. I had but to stick to my story, and I failed to see how Bella could be convicted in face of it. It was not as though there was any old friendship between us that could be raked up and which might lead them to suspect that I was committing perjury. It could be proved that in actual fact I had only seen the girl on three occasions. No, I was still satisfied with my idea, had not even Poirot admitted that it defeated him. But there I felt the need of treading warily, all very well for my little friend to admit himself momentarily nonplussed. I had far too much respect for his abilities to conceive of him as being content to remain in that position. I had a very humble opinion of my wits when it came to matching them against his. Poirot would not take defeat lying down. Somehow or other, he would endeavor to turn the tables on me, and that in the way, and at the moment when I least expected it. We met at breakfast the following morning as though nothing had happened. Poirot's good temper was imperturbable, yet I thought I detected a film of reserve in his manner which was new. After breakfast, I announced my intention of going out for a stroll. A malicious gleam shot through Poirot's eyes. If it is information you seek, you need not be at the pains of deranging yourself. I can tell you all you wish to know. The Dulcibella sisters have cancelled their contract and have left Coventry for an unknown destination. Is that really so, Poirot? You can take it from me, Hastings. I made inquiries the first thing this morning. After all, what else did you expect? True enough, nothing else could be expected under the circumstances. Cinderella had profited by the slight start I had been able to assure her and would certainly not lose a moment in removing herself from the reach of the pursuer. It was what I had intended and planned. Nevertheless, I was aware of being plunged into a network of fresh difficulties. I had absolutely no means of communicating with the girl, and it was vital that she should know the line of defense that had occurred to me, and which I was prepared to carry out. Of course, it was possible that she might try to send word to me in some way or another, but I hardly thought it likely. She would know the risk she ran of a message being intercepted by Poirot, thus setting him on her track once more. Clearly, her only course was to disappear utterly for the time being. But in the meantime, what was Poirot doing? I studied him attentively. He was wearing his most innocent air and staring meditatively into the far distance. He looked altogether too placid and supine to give me reassurance. I had learned, with Poirot, that the less dangerous he looked, the more dangerous he was. His quiescence alarmed me. Observing a troubled quality in my glance, he smiled. You are puzzled, Hastings. You ask yourself why I do not launch myself in pursuit. Well, something of the kind. It is what you would do were you in my place. I understand that. 
but I am not of those who enjoy rushing up and down a country, seeking a needle in a haystack, as you English say. No, let Mademoiselle Bella Duvine go. Without doubt, I shall be able to find her when the time comes. Until then, I am content to wait. I stared at him doubtfully. Was he seeking to mislead me? I had an irritating feeling that, even now, he was the master of the situation. My sense of superiority was gradually waning. I had contrived the girl's escape and evolved a brilliant scheme for saving her from the consequences of her rash act, but I could not rest easy in my mind. Poirot's perfect calm awakened a thousand apprehensions. I suppose, Poirot, I said rather diffidently, I mustn't ask what your plans are. I've forfeited the right. But not at all. There is no secret about them. We return to France without delay. We? Precisely we. You know very well that you cannot afford to let Papa Poirot out of your sight. Eh? Is it not so, my friend? But remain in England by all means if you wish. I shook my head. He had hit the nail on the head. I could not afford to let him out of my sight. Although I could not expect his confidence after what had happened, I could still check his actions. The only danger to Bella lay with him. Giraud and the French police were indifferent to her existence. At all costs, I must keep near Poirot. Poirot observed me attentively as these reflections passed through my mind and gave a nod of satisfaction. I am right, am I not? And as you are quite capable of trying to follow me disguised with some absurdity such as a false beard which everyone would perceive, I much prefer that we should voyage together. It would annoy me greatly that anyone should mock themselves at you. Very well, then, but it's only fair to warn you. I know. I know all. You are my enemy. Be my enemy, then. It does not worry me at all. So long as it's all fair and above board, I don't mind. You have to the full the English passion for fair play. Now your scruples are satisfied, let us depart immediately. There is no time to be lost. Our stay in England has been short but sufficient. I know what I wanted to know. The tone was light, but I read a veiled menace into the words. Still, I began and stopped. Still, as you say, without doubt, you are satisfied with the part you were playing. Me, I preoccupy myself with Jack Renaud. Jack Renaud? The words gave me a start. I had completely forgotten that aspect of the case. Jack Renaud in prison, with the shadow of the guillotine looming over him. I saw the part I was playing in a more sinister light. I could save Bella, yes, but in doing so... I ran the risk of sending an innocent man to his death. I pushed the thought from me with horror. It could not be. He would be acquitted. Certainly, he would be acquitted. But the cold fear came back. Suppose he were not. What then? Could I have it on my conscience? Horrible thought. Would it come to that in the end? A decision. Bella or Jack Renaud? The promptings of my heart were to save the girl I loved at any cost to myself. But if the cost were to another, the problem was altered. What would the girl herself say? 
I remembered that no word of Jack Renaud's arrest had passed my lips. As yet, she was in total ignorance of the fact that her former lover was in prison charged with a hideous crime which he had not committed. When she knew, how would she act? Would she permit her life to be saved at the expense of his? Certainly, she must do nothing rash. Jack Renaud might, and probably would, be acquitted without any intervention on her part. If so, good. But if he was not, that was the terrible, the unanswerable problem. I fancy that she ran no risk of the extreme penalty. The circumstances of the crime were quite different in her case. She could plead jealousy and extreme provocation, and her youth and beauty would go for much. The fact that by a tragic mistake it was old Mr. Renaud, and not his son, who paid the penalty, would not alter the motive of the crime. But in any case, however lenient the sentence of the court, it must mean a long term of imprisonment. No, Bella must be protected, and, at the same time, Jack Renaud must be saved. How this was to be accomplished I did not see clearly, but I pinned my faith to Poirot. He knew. Come what might, he would manage to save an innocent man. He must find some pretext other than the real one. It might be difficult, but he would manage it somehow. And with Bella unsuspected and Jack Renaud acquitted, all would end satisfactorily. So I told myself repeatedly, but at the bottom of my heart there still remained a cold fear. Chapter 24. Save Him We crossed from England by the evening boat, and the following morning saw us in St. Omer, whither Jack Renaud had been taken. Poirot lost no time in visiting Monsieur Hautet. As he did not seem disposed to make any objections to my accompanying him, I bore him company. After various formalities and preliminaries, we were conducted to the examining magistrate's room. He greeted us cordially. I was told that you'd return to England, Monsieur Poirot. I'm glad to find that such is not the case. It is true that I went there, but it was only for a flying visit, a side issue, but one that I fancied might repay investigation. And it did, eh? Poirot shrugged his shoulders. Monsieur Hautet nodded, sighing. We must resign ourselves, I fear. That animal Giraud, his manners are abominable, but... He is undoubtedly clever. Not much chance of that one making a mistake. You think not? It was the examining magistrate's turn to shrug his shoulders. Ah, bien. Speaking frankly in confidence, can you come to any other conclusion? Frankly, there seem to me to be many points that are obscure. Such as? But Poirot was not to be drawn. I have not yet tabulated them, he remarked, it was a general reflection that I was making. I like the young man, and should be sorry to believe him guilty of such a hideous crime. By the way, what has he to say for himself on the matter? The magistrate frowned. I cannot understand him. He seems incapable of putting up any sort of defense. It has been most difficult to get him to answer questions. He contents himself with a general denial, and beyond that takes refuge in a most obstinate silence. I am interrogating him again tomorrow. Perhaps you would like to be present. We accepted the invitation.
a distressing case, said the magistrate with a sigh. My sympathy for Madame Renaud is profound. How is Madame Renaud? She has not yet recovered consciousness. It is merciful in a way, poor woman. She is being spared much. The doctors say that there is no danger, but that when she comes to herself, she must be kept as quiet as possible. It was, I understand, quite as much the shock as the fall which caused her present state. It would be terrible if her brain became unhinged. But I should not wonder at all. No, really, not at all. Monsieur Hotte leaned back, shaking his head with a sort of mournful enjoyment as he envisioned the glooming prospect. He roused himself at length and observed with a start, "'That reminds me. I have here a letter for you, Monsieur Poirot. Let me see. Where did I put it?' He proceeded to rummage amongst his papers. At last he found the missive and handed it to Poirot. "'It was sent under cover to me in order that I might forward it to you,' he explained, but as you left no address, I could not do so. Poirot studied the letter curiously. It was addressed in a long, sloping, foreign hand, and the writing was decidedly a woman's. Poirot did not open it. Instead, he put it in his pocket and rose to his feet. A demain, then, monsieur, many thanks for your courtesy and amiability. But not at all. I am always at your service. These young detectives of the school of Giraud, they are all alike, brood, sneering fellows. They do not realize that an examining magistrate of my uh, experience is bound to have a certain discernment, a certain flair. The politeness of the old school is infinitely more to my taste. Therefore, my dear friend, command me in any way you will. We know a thing or two, you and I, eh? And, laughing heartily, enchanted with himself and with us, Monsieur Hote bade us adieu. I am sorry to have to record that Poirot's first remark to me as we traversed the corridor was, a famous old imbecile, that one, of a stupidity to make pity. We were just leaving the building when we came face to face with Giraud, looking more dandified than ever, and thoroughly pleased with himself. "'Aha! Monsieur Poirot!' he cried airily. "'You have returned from England, then?' "'As you see,' said Poirot. "'The end of the case is not far off now, I fancy. "'I agree with you, Monsieur Giraud.' Poirot spoke in a subdued tone. His crestfallen manner seemed to delight the other. "'Of all the milk-and-water criminals, "'not an idea of defending himself. "'It is extraordinary.' "'So extraordinary that it gives one to think, does it not?' suggested Poirot mildly. But Giraud was not even listening. He twirled his cane amicably. "'Well, good day, Monsieur Poirot. I am glad you're satisfied of young Renaud's guilt at last.' "'Pardon, but I am not in the least satisfied. Jack Renaud is innocent.' Giraud stared for a moment, then burst out laughing, "'tapping his head significantly with the brief remark, "'Toquet.' "'Poirot drew himself up. "'A dangerous light showed in his eyes. "'Monsieur Giraud, throughout the case, "'your manner to me has been deliberately insulting. "'You need teaching a lesson. "'I am prepared to wager you five hundred francs "'that I find the murderer of Monsieur Renaud before you do. "'Is it agreed?' 
Giraud stared helplessly at him and murmured again, Toquet. Come now, urged Poirot. Is it agreed? I have no wish to take your money from you. Make your mind easy. You will not. Oh, well then, I agree. You speak of my manner to you being insulting. Ah bien, once or twice, your manner has annoyed me. I am enchanted to hear it, said Poirot. Good morning, Monsieur Giraud. Come, Hastings. I said no word as we walked along the street. My heart was heavy. Poirot had displayed his intentions only too plainly. I doubted more than ever my powers of saving Bella from the consequences of her act. This unlucky encounter with Giraud had roused Poirot and put him on his mettle. Suddenly, I felt a hand laid on my shoulder and turned to face Gabriel Stoner. We stopped and greeted him, and he proposed strolling with us back to our hotel. And what are you doing here, Monsieur Stoner? inquired Poirot. One must stand by one's friends, replied the other dryly, especially when they are unjustly accused. Then you do not believe that Jack Renaud committed the crime? I asked eagerly. Certainly I don't. I know the lad. I admit that there have been one or two things in this business that have staggered me completely. But nonetheless, in spite of his fool way of taking it, I'll never believe that Jack Renaud is a murderer. My heart warmed to the secretary. His words seemed to lift a secret weight from my heart. I have no doubt that many people feel as you do, I exclaimed. There is really absurdly little evidence against him. I should say that there was no doubt of his acquittal, no doubt whatever. But Stoner hardly responded as I could have wished. I'd give a lot to think as you do, he said gravely. He turned to Poirot. What's your opinion, monsieur? I think that things look very black against him, said Poirot quietly. You believe him guilty, said Stoner sharply? No, but I think he will find it hard to prove his innocence. He's behaving so damned queerly, muttered Stoner. Of course I realize that there's a lot more in this affair than meets the eye. Giraud's not wise to that because he's an outsider. But the whole thing has been damned odd. As to that, Lise said soonest mended. If Mrs. Renaud wants to hush anything up, I'll take my cue from her. It's her show, and I have too much respect for her judgment to shove my oar in. But I can't get behind this attitude of Jack's. Anyone would think he wanted to be thought guilty. But it's absurd, I cried, bursting in. For one thing, the dagger. I paused, uncertain as to how much Poirot would wish me to reveal. I continued, choosing my words carefully. We know that the dagger could not have been in Jack Renaud's possession that evening. Mrs. Renaud knows that. True, said Stoner. When she recovers, she will doubtless say all this and more. Well, I must be leaving you. One moment. Poirot's hand arrested his departure. Can you arrange for a word to be sent to me at once, should Madame Renaud recover consciousness? Certainly, that's easily done. That point about the dagger is good, Poirot, I urged as we went upstairs. I couldn't speak very plainly before Stoner. That was quite right of you. We might as well keep the knowledge to ourselves as long as we can. As to the dagger, your point hardly helps Jack Renaud. You remember 
that I was absent for an hour this morning, before we started from London. Yes. Well, I was employed in trying to find the firm Jack Renaud employed to convert his souvenirs. It was not very difficult. Ah, bien, Hastings. They made to his order not two paper knives, but three. So that... So that, after giving one to his mother and one to Bella Duvine, there is a third which he doubtless retained for his own use. No, Hastings, I fear the dagger question will not help us to save him from the guillotine. It won't come to that, I cried, stung. Poirot shook his head uncertainly. You will save him, I cried positively. Poirot glanced at me dryly. Have you not rendered it impossible, mon ami? Some other way, I muttered. Ah, but it is miracles you ask from me. No, say no more. Let us instead see what is in this letter. And he drew out the envelope from his breast pocket. His face contracted as he read. Then he handed the one flimsy sheet to me. There are other women in the world who suffer, Hastings. The writing was blurred, and the note had evidently been written in great agitation. Dear Monsieur Poirot, if you get this, I beg of you to come to my aid. I have no one to turn to, and at all costs Jack must be saved. I implore of you on my knees to help us. Marta Dubriel. I handed it back, moved. You will go? At once. We will command an auto. Half an hour later saw us at the Villa Marguerite. Marta was at the door to meet us and led Poirot in, clinging with both hands to one of his. Ah, you have come. It is good of you. I have been in despair, not knowing what to do. They will not let me go see him in prison even. I suffer horribly. I am nearly mad. Is it true what they say, that he does not deny the crime? But that is madness. It is impossible that he should have done it. Never for one minute will I believe it. Neither do I believe it, mademoiselle, said Poirot gently. But then, why does he not speak? I do not understand. Perhaps because he is screening someone, suggested Poirot, watching her. Marta frowned. Screening someone? Do you mean his mother? Ah, from the beginning I have suspected her. Who inherits all that vast fortune? She does. It is easy to wear widow's weeds and play the hypocrite. And they say that when he was arrested, she fell down like that. She made a dramatic gesture. And without doubt, Monsieur Stoner, the secretary, he helped her. They are thick as thieves, those two. It is true, she is older than he, but what do men care if a woman is rich? There is a hint of bitterness in her tone. Stoner was in England, I put in. He says so, but who knows? Mademoiselle, said Poirot quietly, if we are to work together, you and I, we must have things clear. First, I will ask you a question. Yes, monsieur. Are you aware of your mother's real name? Marta looked at him for a minute. Then, letting her head fall forward on her arms, she burst into tears. There, there, said Poirot, patting her on the shoulder. Calm yourself, petite. I see that you know. Now, a second question. Did you know who Monsieur Renaud was? Monsieur Renaud, she raised her head from her hands and gazed at him wonderingly. Ah, I see you do not know that. 
Now listen to me carefully. Step by step, he went over the case, much as he had done to me on the day of our departure for England. Marta listened spellbound. When he had finished, she drew a long breath. But you are wonderful, magnificent. You are the greatest detective in the world. With a swift gesture, she slipped off her chair and knelt before him with an abandonment that was wholly French. Save him, monsieur, she cried. I love him so. Oh, save him, save him, save him. This reading comes with kind permission of Agatha Christie Limited. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.